I'm Shane Mahoney, and you're listening to the Urban to Country podcast. Welcome to the Urban to Country podcast, where we talk to outdoor enthusiasts about life, hunting, and how to make everyday epic. Hey guys and gals, welcome back to the Urban to Country podcast. I am very excited for this week's episode. It is with conservation advocate Shane Mahoney. Shane Mahoney is a well-known figure in the conservation movement, as well as the wild harvest movement. And we have a great conversation about why the wild others matter, why harvesting your own food is uh, a valid and important part of our modern society, as well as a variety of other topics. I really appreciate him taking the time to travel all the way from Newfoundland to do this podcast with me, as well as a podcast with the Right to Rome guys. So, Once you listen to this podcast, go listen to the Right to Rome podcast uh, that they did with Shane. It is an excellent listen, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Additionally, I have a new podcast series that I'm starting within the Urban to Country podcast. It's going to be a five-minute episode every Monday, and each episode will feature an inspiring quote or story to help get your week started off right. I really need your help naming the podcast, so if you have an idea for what we should call the podcast... DM me on Instagram, and if I select your idea, we'll feature you on the podcast, and you will be immortalized forever on the Urban and Country Podcast. So I am really excited about this new series that we're doing. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this podcast with Shane Mahoney. Folks, welcome back to the Urban to Country podcast. We are on location in Bozeman, Montana, and I am here with a very special guest, Mr. Shane Mahoney. Shane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here with you. Yes, thank you for traveling a long way to be here. We're here for the Bearing the Bias event, which is going to be a phenomenal event tonight. Uh, is this your first time in Bozeman? No, this is probably my fifth, sixth time, I guess, in Bozeman, and probably my 20th time in Montana. So, Wonderful. Yeah. Very cool. Well, we're glad <laughs> yeah. to have you here. It's a yeah. real honor to have you here. Thank you very much. Um, I wanted to sit down with you because you're doing a lot of really amazing work in the conservation sphere, and one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is your um, organization, Conservation Visions, and the Wild Harvest Initiative. So maybe... You could introduce yourself for my listeners, because I don't think they're very familiar with who yep. you are, yep. and then talk about the work that you're doing. Well, um, the work I'm currently doing is a little bit different from the work um, I did originally. Um, I ran the wildlife research programs for the province of Newfoundland and Labrador in Canada for many years, and uh, did a great deal of work originally on seabirds, but then on predator-prey interactions involving black bears, caribou, moose, lynx, and, and uh, coyotes in that system. And I directed the, um, as I said, all the wildlife research programs on all species for that province. And then formed my own institute uh, associated with the university there and eventually became the head of uh, sustainable development and science for the province as well, as well as executive director for the Institute for Biodiversity there. 
And uh, so most of my career for a large period of time was spent in wilderness settings, actually doing classic research and publishing on our understandings of the dynamics between these large mammal species. Um, but, of course, I was always very interested in the issues of social discourse around the concepts of why animals matter, why wildlife should concern us, why conservation was an important enterprise for human beings to engage in. And um, I started lecturing a great deal in the United States maybe 25 years ago and also was very closely associated with the um, introducing the North American model as a concept to audiences in both Canada and the United States. Most people think that that term is a very old term, but in fact that term was coined in 1988. It's not a historical term at all. But at any rate, I was involved in that. And then uh, after I left the Institute and left government, I founded uh, Conservation Visions, which is a um, uh, an enterprise where I engage in conservation debate. I give advice to conservation organizations and to governments in various parts of the world, um, and which involves me in a lot of international discussions about where conservation is headed. I run the program primarily as a, what you might call a social business. Okay. Um, so in the partnerships that help support me, I use that money to develop commentaries on things as wide-ranging as hunting or climate change, the loss of pollinators. Um, at the same time, I support graduate students, myself directly through Conservation Visions. Every year I have graduate students, which I support. I pay their, uh, you know, the costs associated with their activities for research that I'm interested in. Um, and I also try to, um, I try to influence organizations that are involved in the conservation space to reflect on the motivations they have for being involved and to try to, as much as possible, move people away from perhaps some of the pragmatic realities of where their funding comes from or what their constituency base is to try to get them to think about what really matters. And for me, what really matters are the wild others that inhabit this planet with us and without whom we will simply be condemned to an existence of silence and emptiness for the rest of whatever existence humanity might have. So Conservation Visions is um, people you know, can easily find it. They can easily find me, obviously, and get a better impression of, of the kinds of things it does. One of the things that I've recently launched, it's about three years old now, was something I've called the Wild Harvest Initiative. Um, and it's an attempt to um, position certain aspects of conservation and particularly the harvesting aspect of conservation in a, position it in such a way that it aligns with social change instead of attempting, as we so often do in the conservation space, to challenge the trends that are taking place in society and to force people to uh, sort of rethink the realities of the day. We have an emergent um, social dynamic globally where people are becoming more concerned about health and fitness and the foods that they consume for good reasons. Right. We have mounting evidence to indicate that many diseases and uh, disabilities that are associated with the human condition and particularly the impairment of health stem from the foods that we, that we have and the foods that we are consuming on a regular basis. And uh, 
so this movement towards these healthier lifestyles, more engagement with nature, um, the, the the use of you know farm to table, uh, hundred mile diets, Neanderthal diets, the rise of the chefs as the superstars of the world, uh, all of these kinds of things are social movements that we will not arrest. They're not social movements any of us can individually say we created, and they're social movements that are real and they're forceful. So I say. Let us find ways to make conservation relevant to those social movements, not try to always be at odds with them. And this is where the idea of the Wild Harvest Initiative was born. I became interested in knowing how much wild food uh, recreational hunters and anglers, but also other wild harvesters, such as people who harvest medicinal plants or fungi or wildflowers or firewood or maple syrup or wild honey or wild berries, wild fruits, wild nuts, etc., just to get some idea of what the scale of that kind of harvest is in North American society. And to hold this up to the world as an example of where even industrialized Western society still have a lot of people who do this kind of thing. And to my surprise, uh, even here, in the context of a North American model or otherwise, no one had this data. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Canadian Wildlife Service, no state agency, no provincial agency, no NGO ever had brought this data together. I thought that was a mistake in my own research initially, so I contracted with people to do a more thorough search of all of this, and we reviewed the information and the data, even the gray literature, and lo and behold, discovered that that had not happened. So I set about the process of building a partnership alliance that would examine this question and would set out some very clear objectives. Number one, to know how many animals and fish, for, first of all, we were actually harvesting on this continent recreationally, uh, because that's a fundamentally important statistic, I believe, uh, to estimate the full uh, amount or the weight of the harvest of those, of those animals that we're, 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 we're capturing and consuming, to know what uh, the actual biomass of that, um, of that meat was, to give it an economic value, a real economic value, because it's important for things to have economic values in our political equations. Absolutely. And no one had that data. No one could tell me how many species we even, no one could tell me how many species we hunted in North America and fished. Nobody could tell me how many animals that we harvested collectively on this continent. And certainly nobody could tell me how much meat there was. So those things we are doing. We're also conducting a sharing index. We have 50 million people in Canada and the United States who are involved in recreational fishing and hunting each year, 50 million, out of 360 million people who live in our two countries. Okay. Um, but, of course, the people who harvest wild things from nature, whether this is wild berries, wild mushrooms, wildlife, wild fish, we have a drive within us to share what we harvest from the wild. As I pointed out many times, you do not go to the grocery store and buy a roast of pork and knock on your neighbor's door and give them the roast of pork. You do not do that for family members. Right. You do not go and buy a jar of jam at a grocery store and then give it to your neighbor. But as soon as you harvest from the wild, whether it is berries and you make jams or jellies, whether it's a wild animal that you harvest and you have the meat, then you start to share it. And when we talk about relevance for these activities, one metric of relevance is how many people are engaged. So if we have 50 million people who are engaged in the activity, my question was, how many people do they share that food with? And again, no one could tell me this. 
So we are launching a series of surveys in states and provinces to look at this question of how many people and who are the people with whom hunters and anglers, recreational hunters and anglers, actually share this food. And our rough estimate is not only that we are harvesting billions of pounds of of wild, healthy meat and fish, but that we are sharing this with probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 million people. Wow. So instead of it being 50 million people engaged, it might be 250 million who are actually in some way impacted or engaged with this. Why is this relevant? It's relevant because it tells us how many people obviously are consuming this wild food. It is also relevant because presumably if people are consuming this wild food, then of course they have some level of understanding or empathy for the activity that generates it. Right. And furthermore, this wild harvest idea because we are including now in the database that we have constructed, you know, the harvest of mushrooms and the harvest of berries and fruits and so on and so forth, we have the capacity to build an alliance, a community within the community in Canada and the United States of people who engage in the harvest of things from the natural world on a sustainable basis. Some of those things are widely accepted, such as berry picking or fruit gathering or fungi gathering. Some of those things are slightly more contentious, some aspects of fishing, some are slightly more contentious even than that, some aspects of hunting. Sure. But the point is that the engagements with nature and the harvest, the natural harvest from a sustainable source in a natural world that if protected will continue to provide for our food security and our health is not something that simply pertains to people living in Southeast Asia or parts of South America or parts of Africa. It is something that occurs in some of the wealthiest, most industrialized, you know, uh, countries in the world, including major parts of Europe and, and North America. And I think that's an important lesson for the world to shock them into the realization that it isn't an us and them world, where there's those of us who have wealth and who have large urban centers and don't engage in the harvest of the natural world, and those people who live under other circumstances that do. We are all involved in the harvest from the natural world at one level or another. And if we do it in the right way, this harvest can continue to contribute to human livelihoods and human health and human sustenance in an important way. In this country, the United States of America, 43 million people are food challenged every year. 43 million people in this, the wealthiest country in the world. And in Canada, I think it's three or four million people there. And we have, yet on this continent, landscapes and abundances of wildlife that if we chose to manage that land for wildlife, to produce more of it, because we saw it as valued as a food source and as a natural food source that can be extracted while maintaining environmental balance and environmental integrity, uh, I think we could have quite a paradigm shift as to how we actually value and utilize the land and utilize wildlife. So that... um, that Wild Harvest Initiative has now attracted a lot of partners. Uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, non-governmental organizations. We have some very big, in, in, you know, outdoor industry partners involved in this. And it is continuing to grow. We have an academic program associated with it where we support graduate students doing more detailed examination of these questions. That's great. And I think a lot of people are going to be surprised as we start to mobilize this knowledge as just the scale of, of this activity. So my question when, and I've, 
I've seen you did a video with RMF on this, yep. and there's there's some really great content out there around this idea of uh, the Wild Harvest Initiative. What would be the the effect if we were to say no more hunting, no more wild harvest? We're removing this from the uh, the human experience. Um, what what would be the impact of that? Well, I think it's a really profound question because one of the things that we have to start providing to society is what we refer to as the counterfactual. So mm-hmm. this is as it exists, and these are the benefits, whatever, but let's look at it and see what happens right. if we take it away. One of the essential first questions, if you see any of the materials that we've generated on the Wild Harvest Initiative, actually starts with this uh, question. So let's just for a moment think about it. This all goes away. First of all, what goes away if you eliminate this is obviously this harvest. Now, if we have billions of pounds, this this food is all being consumed. I mean, it's not just being harvested and wasted. It's being harvested and eaten and mm-hmm. shared with people. Then that food has to be replaced, obviously. So that's the first thing. So we have to find a way to replace billions of pounds of food that are currently being provided by natural systems effortlessly in the sense that we do not invest in them. You know, we do not plant them. We do not fertilize them. We do not do any of those kinds of things. And we have to look at replacing uh, food of equal quality, mm-hmm. which is very, very difficult to do because these this is the healthiest food that man can consume. I mean, there's nothing healthier than Absolutely. this. Um, and the only way, however, that we could even dream of replacing this wild harvest with um, agricultural produce or animal livestock production systems would be at large scale. We couldn't do this as sort of hobby farming or something right. of this nature. Yep. So we're looking at a really industrialized scale of food production. And as we know, it is inevitable, despite the fact we must have them because of the numbers of people we do have on the planet, these industrialized agricultural systems carry their own risks and costs associated. We would lose more wildlife land. We would have to turn it more wildlife land into production. We would have to invest in more chemicals because it's inevitable that those systems consume those things. We would have to, in other words, replace a system that is providing us with this kind of food in a kind of natural, never-ending kind of natural production system if the lands and waters are there, and replace it with these artificial systems which are not environmentally friendly and which do have increased environmental costs. And in many circumstances, some circumstances, depending where you fall, produces food of an inferior quality in terms of its health benefits and and so forth. That's just one thing, but that's not a small thing. No, it's a huge thing. The estimate right now in some recent research that has emerged is that if, for example, we wanted to move the earth the, the, the human society globally away from the consumption of animal protein and simply all the way towards a more vegan-based kind of diet, that we would need to take a piece of uh, highly productive land for wildlife and for production uh, of something on the order of the size of a country like Canada. And this would not be just any land. This would be the best land, of course, the most productive lands that we have. That's what it would take. And the implications for wildlife for such a an implementation would be absolutely catastrophic. Um, so th- asking people to at least think about these things, I think, is very important. In the mainstream society, not just in the hunting world or the angling world. This is, in other words, not just a defense of those activities, if you will. Right. It's asking people to really consider the benefits. But that's just one thing. Then we have to consider 
that if we did end those practices of hunting and recreational angling, all of the human livelihoods and economies and mm-hmm. conservation benefits that go along with the expenditures associated with those activities, some of which are direct, so people who engage in those activities buy things, they rent things, they stay in places, you know, many rural economies are significantly impacted by, benefit, beneficially so, by those activities. Right. That would be lost. And, of course, because in the United States in particular we have these many kind of special taxes, if you will, that have been implemented on aspects of those activities, such as the purchase of firearms and ammunition and so forth, uh, and also because people pay for the right and privilege of being able to engage in those activities, and that money goes back into conservation, all of it, uh, then we would see a, a, you know, a complete undermining of the current system as it exists of state agencies and, in some cases, provincial agencies that rely very, very heavily on those kinds of expenditures for their existence. Um, and furthermore, we would also lose a constituency voice that does argue for um, you know, land preservation and the conservation of wildlife. And even if people want to view that as selfish reasoning, they just want wildlife and fish so they can hunt and fish, it still consequentially means that there is a voice out there arguing for those species to be protected. And, of course, if you took away the hunting and angling community, you would also take away the incredible number of NGOs, big and small, Mm -hmm. that are part of that community, which raise hundreds of millions of dollars separately from all the other monies we're talking about annually to invest in conservation. So all of those things, all of that system would be disrupted. And what would emerge in its place, it's very hard to predict or imagine, but it's also very hard to imagine that we could ever simply replace it in any short period of time. And all of that, the constituencies, the financial support, the natural harvest of things that are shared with so many people, giving them an impression or an appreciation for what the land and waters can give us directly to our own benefits from a health point of view, uh, all of that would be lost. It would be a, a catastrophic change for the current system that we have in Canada and the United States, and I am unaware of any broad-scale strategic architecture for a system of policies, laws, institutions, and funding mechanisms that would replace the system that we currently have. There are people who criticize the system that we currently have. There are people who make some suggestions on a particular issue here and there. But there is nothing that I'm aware of that's been brought forward by as an alternative approach and philosophy that's comprehensive, encompassing, strategic, and self-funding in the way that the system we have today is. Wow. Yeah, the the ripple effect that that would have. Not, And I appreciate that you talked about jobs and NGOs who would be affected by this because sometimes I think it's very simple to say, well, we should stop doing X activity, but you don't take into consideration the wide-ranging implications for what that means. Mm-hmm. So thank you for breaking that down. Mm-hmm. The, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about was... Um, a question that came actually from my my youth. So I grew up largely removed from uh, char- charismatic megafauna. I lived just outside of a very large city. If we saw a deer, it was a big deal because there just wasn't a lot of that to be seen. 
I remember very distinctly the first time I saw a coyote. I was 17. We were driving somewhere and we looked over and it was like this incredible event in my life because there was a coyote and you just didn't see those. Uh, so I, I, as I think about people that are still in similar circumstances to what I was in growing up, how do we, how do we articulate to them why they should care about wildlife? Um, people that, that don't get to interact with wildlife on a regular basis, why should they care? Uh, because in my opinion, and, and tell me if you disagree with this, I think that those are the people that it's important to bring into the community of caring about wildlife. Because if those people don't care, we will lose the fight for conservation. That's my opinion. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I, th- I don't think that um, we should necessarily assume that the people who live in the cities don't already care. Um, you know, the conservation movement in the United States of America was not founded by people living in rural America. Mm-hmm. The conservation movement in this country was launched by blue bloods and relatively wealthy elites in the eastern cities. That's where it was born. Um, And uh, in many cases around the world, a similar pattern has taken place. So, you know, I, I would just interject that to understand that from a historical perspective, the reality is that the movements were launched in those circumstances, and they too lived largely without wildlife, if you will, in their everyday lives, although many of them had access to it because they had wealth, they could travel, and they could go to places. Sure. Um, The second thing is that, um, you know, the largest television audience of all time that has ever been recorded was recorded by uh, the BBC for their series, Planet Earth. Mm, yeah. And um, I don't know what the final numbers were, but a very significant percentage of that viewership came from deep urban centers, of course, around the world. So people who live in the absence of wildlife are not necessarily living in an absence of awareness or concern about what happens to wildlife. Um, often the values they freight are different than the values that people who live amongst wildlife will often have. That's true. But I don't think it's true that people who live in cities don't have those kinds of concerns. Uh, And in fact, we know that um, urban masses can, and um, urban opinions, can be effectively mobilized, you know, to demonstrate on behalf of a particular model, you know, of conservation which uh, in lots of cases, but not all, is focused on a more preservationist rather than utilitarian kind of an approach to to a wild nature. Um, so, I mean, I think that it's, it's not a clear dichotomy in my mind between those who live with it and those who live sort of without it. Um, it's more a matter of how they express their interest and their engagement and their activism with regard to conservation. It's also, on the flip side, very true <clears throat> that um, a lot of rural people, and I can speak authoritatively about that because I grew up in an extraordinarily rural circumstance uh, in Newfoundland, um, you know, a lot of rural people, uh, you know, don't necessarily think about the conservation aspects of things in a sort of conceptual way. They're living with animals. They're harvesting animals. They're raising animals. They're butchering animals. They're they're living in that kind of an environment. So their sense of consciousness around all of this is very different. They're actually living in those circumstances. And that brings a different viewpoint, too, of course, because our experiences in our lives make shape the opinions and the viewpoints that we obviously have. 
I also believe that, um, you know, it is entirely possible, of course, as many people do, to build far better cities, you know, with a lot more green space. Absolutely. And, you know, and a lot more access to at least small wildlife, birds, for example, and so on. We can we can really encourage bird life and insect life in our cities. It's not the same as seeing a moose, no, or a grizzly bear. But nevertheless, it's still something that excites people when they see it. They see a beautiful duck or they see a, you know, woodpecker or they see, uh, you know, birds engaged in their kind of interesting behaviors, such as the jays and the corvids are all seem to be always engaged in some serious piece of business. If you look at a magpie, they're they're always (laughs) intensely doing something. They don't take any time off, it seems. Uh, You know, I mean, I think it's entirely possible to attract that. I think it's possible for people to have private gardens in cities, even in sky rises. I think that we, we have lots of examples in Europe where people are raising gardens. I mean, you go to Italy, people are raising tomatoes on their little tiny little balconies everywhere, you know, in the heart of the biggest cities. So I think, um, I don't think it's a matter that we um, don't have people in cities who care or that we can't make people in cities more aware of wildlife. Um, And in some ways, I think they're riper environments than rural people because rural people do see it. Rural people drive through massive landscapes on their way to work or on their way home from working in a store in Bozeman or whatever. I mean, they see the mountains, they see rivers, they see lots of open country, they see wildlife. But everybody wants to be able to see that. I mean, when I check into a hotel anywhere in the world and, you know, somebody is there in in the room working, you know, cleaning the room or setting it up or whatever they're doing, and they happen to see the literature that I have, the books that I'm reading or something. I mean, a lot of them will ask me, you know, what do you do? And as soon as you say you're in the working, you work with wildlife or you work in the field of conservation, there's this instant opening, yep. you know. We've all had that experience, and people say, that's amazing. I wish I could see that. And then some of them will tell you a little story about an experience they may have had with an animal that, because of the richness of experiences we have had, may not seem that spectacular to us, but is really spectacular in the lives of those individuals, like you as a, as a boy seeing that coyote, yeah. right? It's really memorable because it's so rare for them. Um, and, of course, also, it is in cities that we have the greatest displays of um, animal art and photography and natural history museums. Absolutely. And, I mean, a lot of rural people, certainly when, where I grew up, we didn't have any of that. We missed all of that. We didn't have the opportunity to learn about those things at all. We had other opportunities, but we didn't have those. I sort of look at it as, you know, we have different communities of people, just as we have different cultures and backgrounds and races and religions. And we have to find a way to speak about conservation in ways that matter to them and recognizing the hungers that people have by virtue of the circumstances in which they live and so cities, to me, are, in fact, a great hope for wildlife in a great many ways. And yeah. I sort of always, you know, recoil a little bit when I hear comments made by people who say, oh, that's just, you know, those urban people, you know, they don't really know what the real world is like and so on. Well, uh, that may be true that they don't know about certain aspects of the real world, but I would argue that lots of rural people don't necessarily know about the rigors and challenges of living life in a city either, yes. but that doesn't make them any less or, you know, competent or informed or anything of that nature. So, 
you know, I'm always interested in breaking barriers down rather than trying to, in some unintentional way, reinforce the idea of barrier by saying we have to do something completely different. I was at a meeting um, in New York uh, three or four years ago uh, that was hosted by, I'll just say, two of the the most prestigious families, amongst the most prestigious families in America, and happened to be at a country estate and place of, of one of those individuals. And I met a young person there, a young girl who, you know, she was late, I mean, maybe she might have been 19 or 20, something of that nature, who had come from another country and had lived in a very urban circumstance where she came from and went to work for one individual who was helping set up this meeting, which was a a discussion about conservation. And so she told me that um, uh, we got talking and she started to tell me with great excitement about her tomato plants. So she had never raised anything in her life, uh, plant or animal, and she had never had the experience. And so she was enraptured and she was enthralled and explaining to me in the most vivid of terms and the most deeply excited way about how you only needed to have a pot of soil and to put a seed in there and water it and just leave it outside and magically this plant would appear <laughs> and that after a period of time it would grow these things on it and then if you left them long enough they turn red and you can actually eat them and so I thought about that conversation a lot. I mean, I've reflected on it many times. So here is a study of ecology, inadvertent, not structured, but incredibly impactful in the life of that human being because they could raise a single plant from a seed and watch it grow and actually produce food through the interaction of you know, carbon dioxide and light and the amazing machinery that's built into green plants on this earth. Um, and that says to me that you can give any child, any child, anywhere, a an experience about nature. It's not going to be looking at grizzly bears, you know, across a, a ravine or on an alpine meadow, perhaps. No, that's true. But it can be other things that will teach them about this. Our problem is that our institutions don't think at the individualistic level. And right. as a result of that, uh, they very often miss the opportunities to bring people into, if you can care for the plant that is in the pot that you have invested in and raised, you can, of course, care for the small vegetable garden in a small backyard plot in a city. You can care for the flower and vegetable garden you plant in a place like rural Newfoundland or here in Montana. You can care for the rain. You can care for the boreal. You can care for the earth. And, you know, it's very easy for this amazing primate called human to go from the specific to the general in that kind of a way. So I, uh, I, you know, I think we should not just be going into urban centers and trying to get kids out, which is a prevailing kind of motif, a prevailing kind of strategy, you know. Right. Let's get them out somewhere. Um, If we're going to rely on that idea, uh, we're going to fail because we ain't ever going to bring the 7 billion of which maybe, 
3 billion or 4 billion live in cities and many more will in the future. We're never going to bring all them out into, no. into the natural world. We've got to bring it to them in some kind of way. Meet them where they're at. Meet them where they're at. Create cities that, you know, there's no reason in the world why our cities are so ungreen, except that we don't make any effort to make them green. It's just the way it's been, and sure. people don't know any different. Let's turn it upside down. I mean, yeah. I wish I was Bill Gates or someone like that. I'd build, <laughs> I just take all my money, I think, and build a model city. Not that he isn't doing fantastic things with what he's doing with his money, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So what you were just talking about now made me think of a conversation I had recently, and, and a friend of mine just made the comment to me that hunters, anglers, those who subsist off the, the natural world for a lot of our food don't always do the best job telling our story. And I think we were talking about this a little bit last night that we, um, most of what we do is really not that objectionable mm-hmm. when no. we have, we sit down and have a conversation, but we yeah. don't always do the best job of telling our story. No. Could you touch a little bit on how we can better tell our story? Well, I think first of all, we need to put our story in context. Um, you know, I keep trying to find examples that will reach um, a reasonable person's mind. So let's take a term like hunting. You know, that term has become invested in a lot of colorful dimensions that lead people, in some cases, to be very much opposed to it, and in other cases, people are very much in favor of it, etc. But it very often both viewpoints are some distance away from what the reality of of what actually happens. Um, And I think that um, we need to explain to people why it is not so exceptional and why it is not isolated in some ways. I think the biggest mistake we've made in communicating about hunting is we have attempted to exceptionalize it. Mm. I think this has been a tragic error. I said so 25 years ago. Just as I think the marriage with hunting and the media, particularly the television uh, networks, has been a disaster overall for hunting. Um, while there are some good examples now of things that are really doing some good things, there have been so many bad examples of, of how we've portrayed it. So I think that we, we need to, first of all, in our message, not exceptionalize it, not say it is the only route to goodness, not say that we are the only people who care about the natural world, not say that hunting in every case is conservation, not try to convince people that every hunter out there is motivated primarily by going out and conserving wildlife when they engage in the activity, to try to put it in a broader, more truthful context of a diverse, one of the components of a diverse way of engaging in life and choosing things that a lot of people could see as positive attributes. I want to take responsibility for the meat I consume. I am a meat eater. Some people don't eat meat. I understand that, and it's fantastic that they do that. I don't want to do that, and I don't think the globe can do that as we've talked about. So if I'm going to eat meat, I would like as much as possible in this world to take responsibility for the animals that provide that to me, and take responsibility for their death, which is not always a pleasant experience by any means, whether that is killing a domestic animal or whether it's killing a wild animal. It is not a simple thing to take the life of any creature. And so I believe, however, that there is a certain degree of honorability if I am going to be a mediator to take the responsibility for the death of the animal that provides that. 
I do believe that we should explain to people that hunting, as it has been defined, is really a kind of a caricature in many ways because I see fundamentally no difference, you know, in world fisheries and the hunting of elk or world fisheries uh, and the hunting of sea ducks by rural Newfoundlanders. I simply see the chase of those animals as using different methods in a different environment. But those fish species are sentient creatures. They feel pain. They respond to temperature and to light. They breed. In some cases, they even defend and care for their young. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have amazing capacities to do things that obviously human beings cannot do. Um, And they try to avoid us. They don't want to be captured. But we capture them and we kill them in massive numbers and we butcher them and we consume them. Now, when somebody says, for example, I am against hunting, does that mean they want all world fisheries to collapse? The cessation of all world fisheries currently today would impoverish, from a, from a food security perspective, a further 2 to 3 billion people on this planet in a serious way. And it would eliminate hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of jobs directly and indirectly around the world. I mean, when we say we're going to end hunting or that we should end hunting, are we really saying that that's what we want for the world? And if that is something that we don't want for the world, but we also want to end hunting, then what's the solution to that equation? What's the replacement of this? And would we prefer that we raised all those fish in captivity, raised them all in pens, in little small screen pens, in some secret little coves around Norway or the coast of Newfoundland or Oregon or or British Columbia or somebody? Is that the better alternative for us, or is it better to leave those animals out there in a wild, productive ocean and pursue them and harvest them in a sustainable way and hopefully do it in a, in a, in a reasonable way as well that does not destroy the ocean environment and does not deplete those populations? So, I mean, I think that this context of putting hunting in the context, not exceptionalizing it, and pointing out its, 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 its natural relationship with many activities that the broad stream of public opinion is in support of. I don't hear any massive movement out there in society to say, let's end all global fisheries. I don't hear that. I, I don't hear anybody saying that either. No. So if that's the case, then what we need to do is to try to make people understand those kinds of things the scale of the activity, the moral imperative about the activity. And there is a moral imperative, I do believe, about taking on the difficult task of taking an animal's life, which at least for me is difficult, of taking an animal's life, but knowing that if I'm going to eat meat, I will do what I can. That doesn't mean I don't eat domestic beef, you know, Mm -hmm. no, but as far as I can, in my deep freeze, there is now an elk from New Mexico. There's part of a moose from the island of Newfoundland. There is salt codfish from the waters off that coast. There are wild rabbits from the island of Newfoundland, which we harvest in the millions. Um, that's what's there. You got options. Yeah. And, and I feel, did those animals die? Yes. The question is, how did they live? And this is another message, of course, that we have failed to project If we are going to engage in the death of animals, which we clearly are as a species, the question is, how can we we have that and protect the natural world at the same time? And also, from an animal welfare point of view, 
how can we provide under that system the best possible lives for animals? We know that industrialized animal production has in many cases been subjected to criticism, and we know that in some cases there are appalling circumstances under which domestic livestock is raised. There's also some very good examples of how domestic livestock is raised, and that movement is growing, fortunately. But it is very hard to imagine anything better than the natural life of a wild animal, which lives, in the case of a moose, for 15 to 20 years, from the age of a calf to, you know, senility or to when it is killed by a predator or dies of old age or dies of an accident or dies of disease. It's subjected to the weather. It's subjected to the seasons. These are sentient animals that like warmth, that know cold, that, you know, hide from blizzards, that know the foods they prefer, you know, that that know the landscapes they want to be in, that space themselves away from predators that are constantly in a dynamic with their own environment. And yes, someone comes along at some point in time, and for some percentage of those animals, it is true that someone harvests them. So they die in a period mostly of minutes, uh, in some cases virtually instantly, uh, out of a life of 20 years, they may not even know that they are being pursued. They may not even know that death is coming. That is hardly true for the vast, vast majority of animals that we raise under domestic circumstances, no matter how careful we are or how kind we are with respect to them. And so I also believe that projecting hunting as an example of how to engage in the ecology of the planet while being concerned for animal welfare is one of the greatest omissions in the messaging that hunting that we've ever had. As a matter of fact, hunting organizations and hunting individuals and hunting agencies and so on and so forth, if anything, try to shy away from discussions of animal welfare because they feel somehow that's going to reflect back on them in a bad way and people are going to say, well, you're a terrible person because you go out and you hunt animals. The truth of the matter is, from an animal welfare perspective and argument point of view, I think there's a very strong argument to be said that those animals that I eat as a result of hunting have lived a better life than it's almost possible for us to give to any domestically raised animal. And yet we know that we are raising billions of domestic animals every year, billions every year, and the one purpose they have in life is to provide us with meat. So that's another message that the hunting community never uses. And I mean never. I've never heard those that, that kind of an argument being used in favor of hunting, but it may be starting now. I don't know, but it certainly wasn't the case for decades. I think the other point that we need to make is that, and we have been doing this, I think, is the, the, the fact that hunting raises a constituency, even if it is of self-interest, a constituency that does place a value on those wild animals and that mm-hmm. does want them to be there. And that's not such a, a foreign argument. I mean, the whole argument about the engagement of indigenous and rural peoples around the world that's preoccupying the United Nations and the World Bank and the EU Council and the IUCN and other such groups is based on the idea that you must incentivize people to care for the natural world and to care for wildlife. Well, if it applies to the people in those regions of the world, why does it not apply to people who live in other parts of the world, such as the developed parts of Europe or the industrialized West generally? Of course it should. 
there's an illogic in separating those kinds of components, in my view. It's, it's, it, it's not a logical narrative, and we should challenge it and break it down. I think this is another thing that we should talk about. And we should also raise the point that, you know, hunting and angling really do contribute significantly to the livelihoods of real people, real families, real communities in really meaningful ways. Yes, again, like world fisheries, we can wave our hand and say, take it all away. Just just eliminate that. Well, then walk into those rural communities for whom hunting and fishing seasons are the very basis of what, of how they survive. It's the heartbeat. Yeah. Find the solution for those people. Replace the 600,000 jobs in rural America that basically are derived from those kinds of activities. And do it, please, in the hardest places to bring employment in this country. Now, come up with that plan, come up with that solution, and then I think there's a serious conversation to be had. But to simply say, you know, end all hunting, which to me means we don't take scallops, lobsters, codfish, tuna, you know, uh, whatever, halibut, whatever is out, salmon, wild salmon, whatever is out there, you know, and, and not have an alternative for it, I don't think that's really... Uh, I don't really think that's an effective contribution to the debate over over, over conservation. And um, with hunting, we have so many additional ways to express it. And we have done such a terrible, terrible, terrible job of doing so. And believe me, that day is not over. We are still doing a pretty poor job of explaining this to people. And yet, we all know that 50 million people in Canada and the United States, as we talked about with the wild harvest, engage in the harvesting of, of living creatures, fish and, and birds and mammals. And we harvest tens of millions of them. Uh, while we know that 50 million people engage in that, we know that they're sharing that food with a great many people. And if there's one thing that human societies admire is this capacity on behalf of human beings to share. This is one of the major moral threads that runs through debate in societies all the time. You know, rich versus poor, mm-hmm. super rich versus middle class, uh, you know, trying to encourage siblings to share with one another, to share with their friends. You know, this is a hugely important component of our humanness. Mm-hmm. And here we have uh, this, not only this beautiful expression of that sharing, because of what hunters and anglers do, but a tie between that and our original past lives, because there has to be some connection with our deep evolutionary past for us to feel, as I said, that we have to share this wild stuff, but we don't have to share the commodities that we purchase. And so this is an incredibly important narrative. The hunting community has gotten hung up on um, the idea that it's the animal death that makes the decision in the public's mind. This is completely wrong. This is not just flawed, it is fundamentally wrong. The rancher in American society and the farmer who raises animals for the sole purpose of death, that's what they're being raised for. Every one of those animals is being raised and fed and cared for to be brought to the slaughterhouse, to be killed, and to be used as food. Yet, those personas 
those occupations are widely admired in this country. So if it was the animal death issue, how do we square that? Yeah. So I really think we have, fortunately, an enormous opportunity to improve the way we talk about it. And, of course, we now have the rise of, um, you know, the health, fitness, healthy food movements, which are offering hunting in particular, but hunting and angling both, probably the most uh, the, the, the most runway for a new narrative and for a sensitive narrative that society, emerging society, millennial and earlier society will understand that we've had, I would say, ever. Oh, I agree. I think, I think that there's a very positive shift in the way that we communicate about hunting and about harvesting wild game, wild food. And it's in large part to conservationists like yourself and folks like Randy Newberg who do do an excellent job of communicating more than just the whack em and stack em mentality yep. that is portrayed on a lot of yep. popular television. Um, so one question uh, that I wanted to ask you is you're a, a conservation hero to a lot of folks. Um, who are some of your conservation heroes as you look back over your career? Who who have you idolized and tried to model yourself after? Well, um, there are a lot of them, actually, and some of them come from the predictable places. I mean, obviously, to me, George Perkins Marsh, who a lot of people in our movement do not even know who that is, but George Perkins Marsh wrote a book in the late 1830s in this country called Man and Nature, which, believe it or not, you can still buy right today. You can go just Google that book, Man and Nature, uh, George Perkins Marsh, and you will find what really is a 160-year-old pre-runner of Jared Diamond's Collapse. That's incredible. I'm going to have to go read that. Gifford Pinchot was given a copy of that book on his 21st birthday by his parents. And um, so George Perkins Marsh I discovered uh, many, 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 many years ago. And I had no idea who this man was. And then came to understand he was a polymath. He spoke something like seven languages. He he um, eventually became an ambassador for the American government in the Mediterranean region. I think he died in Italy. Uh, just an absolutely extraordinary mind. I mean, he was a genius, obviously, and he had great influence upon the whole group of Roosevelt and Grinnell and all of those. So he was certainly a very early, because for me, he was a man so far ahead of his time who was able to draw lessons from world history and the collapse of earlier civilizations that he really presaged so many people who became very popular and important today, and yet nobody seemed to know that he had written this 160 years ago. Um, And then, of course, there was that constellation of people, not only the well-knowns like the Grinnells and, and, and the Roosevelts and so on, but the army of people who were agitating for conservation at a time when relatively few people lived even west of the Mississippi. I mean, the population of this country was tiny. It was still mostly an undeveloped 
country, really, yeah. compared with today. It's very young. Yeah, and yet they saw the need for this, you know, of what will be lost for, for future generations. And, of course, they were all blue bloods. They all had wealth. Yep. They all had status. They never had to worry about whether they would have access. They would always have access. And yet they preoccupied themselves with this kind of question. So obviously a lot of people see those as, as kind of heroes. I see the people that I grew up with in rural Newfoundland society who had the capacity to love the natural world in which they fished and worked despite its hardships and despite the poverty, and believe me, it was poverty, uh, despite that fact, um, and despite the fact that they went out every day to kill things. They were fish killers. That's, that's for 500 years. That's how we survived there. We killed fish and whales and other things, mm-hmm. uh, but mostly fish. And yet, watching in some of those uh, people the, the, the wisdom that you know they had developed about the natural world and our, you know, the, the humility they had about our inconspicuous place in it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and our unspecial place in it w- was, a, was a very important lesson to me because what I find a lot about the conservation movement, just like all other political movements, is that um, social and political movements is that people really develop very quickly a sense of self-importance and, you know, that somehow, you know, they're there are many gods that are, you know, just clearing the tracks in some great cosmic way. When in fact we're 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 just seven billion animals, a lot of us, but you know we're still tied to the same basic equations. So they were they were definitely heroes of mine. Leopold, of course, was a was a fairly big influence, but not because of anything he did, other than the way he wrote about mornings and birdsong and things of this nature, and his whole idea that this again man and nature interaction was critically important and that we could dream of better ways of interacting with the natural world despite industrialization and wealth and capitalization and so on and so forth. I found him to be very profound, but of course, Leopold himself was not the originator of a lot of the thinking. Again, um, there were Russian agitators, Russian agitators who presaged uh, Aldo Leopold and you know, were were thinkers who had influenced him. So there is these kinds of historical trajectories. I think that people like uh, Rachel Carson was a very important influence on me because this was a person who worked embedded in the bowels of government, you know, a federal administration, mm-hmm. um, you know, who faced a lot of challenges as a female scientist and then as an outspoken critic of mega industry and you know really confronted the 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 corporate political machine of america um and was also you know often very ill and you know she had a lot of illness and so on she was certainly somebody who told me that you could be embedded even in the constraining and often manipulated environment of government institutions and still do the right thing for, for conservation. Uh, she was uh, uh, very important. Um, you know, um, both, um, I mean, all, all three of the ladies, women who worked on the primate research were big influences to me, um, you know, because you know, they had, uh, to me, dared to expose 
if I would say it this way, the humanness of animals uh, in a way that really very few people had attempted or been bold enough or had been unbiased enough to actually present to us. Um, and so that th- they were very, very critical to me because as a, as, as a, for all my life, you know, I, I really very early, I now know, began to realize that they were every bit as important to me as people. And, you know, some people don't like that statement, and I'm sorry, but that's exactly how I have felt. Even animals that I have lost that have been part of my life for a long period of time, I have missed with the same level of intensity as people. There is no difference. We may intellectually say there is, but I don't really believe there is. You can lose a family member, and you can lose let's say a dog that you have had for 15 or 20 years, 15 years, you can have essentially exactly the same emotional experience in the loss of those. So I was very grateful for people who were bold enough not to necessarily make a crusade over this, but to point out that we really do share so much with, with uh, you know, with the rest of, of these animals. Um, and they share so much with us that we ought to be thinking about them in very different ways. This is why I can never accept them as targets. I can never see their death as an indifferent exercise. I can never feel that uh, because I have killed animals and some number of them in my lifetime, that I ever can feel that it is that it it gets more normal or it gets you know more routine or something of this nature. It does not. I hope it never does. I don't want it to. Um, and I have seen, you know, Valerius Geist, who is a, just a, one of the most amazing thinkers in this dimension that, you know, we've ever had, um, is a modern-day intellectual hero, if you will, somebody who was able to bring so many things together in terms of our understanding of how the natural world works and the inside lives of species such as mountain sheep in particular and so forth, but also to uh, make us aware of how much history matters in our understanding of conservation. He has been a very, very important uh, influence on me. And, of course, then there are all the artists, you know, because artists have been a huge influence in my life because I know that art comes from our engagement with the natural world. That's where it all stems from. So I have studied a lot of things about art and about artists, and particularly about those early humans who developed the parietal art, the cave art in Europe, and so on and so forth. I mean, when I finally got to see that work, you know, the the actual artwork itself in the caves, it was just a complete reaffirmation of everything I had ever believed that for the longest part of our existence, certainly up until the advent of agriculture 10,000 years ago, we didn't believe we were different at all. Um, we, we were enthralled by them even then, despite the fact that we depended on them absolutely for our own existence. There was no other way. Um, and yet we honored them. We immortalized them. There are no humans in these cave sites. Mm. There are no sunsets 
There are no trees. It's the animals. There are no landscapes. Right? Yeah. The human beings are stick people, little round heads, you know, like <laughs> hangman. Right? That's yep. the human being. The only human thing that has any kind of real uh, actual form to it are handprints, mm. which were either put there by embedding the hand in the dyes and putting them on the wall or putting the hand on the wall and blowing the ink through the fingers so that the impression of the hand is there. That was the two ways. That's the only part of humanness that's really, really captured there. Um, and we were preoccupied with them. They, and we didn't just paint them. You know, we painted them in exquisite, absolute detail. Yeah. Right? I mean, their coat colors, their manes, their eyes, their expressions, their, their, their looking at one another. I mean, and of course, there are some images of how we kill them, you know, the engagements with them, you know, with hunting them and so on. But mostly it was not that. Most of the imagery is just of them that's there. And so all of them, I think, are heroes of mine. Uh, the people who went into those caves and honored those animals in that way uh, and left us with something that, you know, 30,000 years later, we're able to have our greatest artist of the 20th century, arguably uh, Picasso, you know, go there. And when he saw uh, Lascaux and Trois Frères, you know, these famous caves in France and Altamere in Spain, you know, he, he was asked when he came out, you know, what do you think? And he said, we have invented nothing. After Lascaux, all else is decadence. Hmm. Right? I mean, what more can you say that these men, uh, we presume they were mostly men based on the size of the hands that were there, although there's juvenile hands as well, they went into these caves and in virtual total darkness with tiny little you know, rock lamps made of a little bit of animal fat, maybe with maybe with a piece of cotton grass with its blossom alight in animal fat, painted these magnificent things that go on for, you know, whole wall expanses of rock where they would have had to have been moving the light along with them because they could never have illuminated these vast caverns with that kind of lighting. I mean, to, just, to, just to even contemplate this is just... And some of those caves were painted repeatedly over a period of up to 30,000 years. I mean, this is, this is it, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. And then 10,000 years ago, it all stopped, and we don't have any more until we start with the art of wildlife that we have today, which is now as an explosion. Mm-hmm. You go up in the stores that line the main street up here in Bozeman, Montana, and go in there and look at pillowcases and clothing and lampshades and, you know, sheets for a bed or look at anything. Just go up there and take a notebook and walk along through those stores and write down every animal image you see up there. You will be astounded. When you, I've done it many times. <laughs> you will be astounded at the end of a day of how many ticks you have in your book about this. It's truly phenomenal what's happening. It is. It's amazing. Um, Incredible. Yeah. It's just... Uh, it's just great what's uh, what's taking place, and uh, and you know as our technologies allow us to explore the natural world and see more of this, we're seeing such amazing things. I mean, all of us have seen some of these incredible videos. I mean, and despite yeah. the fact that they're on social media, it doesn't make them any less incredible or less credible. When we see polar bears playing with sled dogs, what do we make of this? 
Yeah, it makes you really stop and think and, and question everything that you're preconceived. That's to. exactly what it should do. Yeah. Make you stop and, and go right all the way back from everything you ever thought about with regard to animals and human and animal animal interaction. You gotta throw it all away and you gotta go right back to step A. Yep. Takes you back. Yeah. You have a polar bear walking up, and there's a tethered sled dog, and the, they're bouncing around, playing with one another, and so on and so forth. Uh, and how does that work? Well, it challenges it challenges the conclusions that a lot of us have drawn about this interaction between quote-unquote predator and prey, because we assume that that polar bear is just a killing machine, because that's what we've been told. Yep. And when you see that, it makes you question, is my understanding of the world around me really factual is it yeah. is that the way it really functions yeah and i i really appreciate a lot of the videos and the stories that people are telling because it's really challenging us to see the world in a different way yeah and and that that is where i think change comes from is when we allow ourselves to be shown a different way and reevaluate the way that we process the world around us mm. and i think that's what the conversations that you do help people do and and that many others mm. the many other conversations that people mm. are having help us to do mm. there is a fundamental uh, need to rethink our relationship with them mm-hmm. and of course uh, some components um, some people will say yes there is and that means we should never use them and other people or harvest them and some people will say well, that's just somebody going soft on all of this, and it's just yeah. that's just you know pure poppycock. I mean, I don't believe in that. But the truth of the matter is, there are not that many hunters who have spent as much time with wild animals as I have. I believe you. Uh, yeah, believe me, there are very few biologists who have spent as much time with wild animals as I have. I've lived with them, and I can tell you that you see things that simply shock you and the expressions that they have. And it's always amazed me, and this is where I come back to some of the, you know, the great work uh, that the the primatologists did. Um, You know, it's always made me uncomfortable that we can look at, for example, the bond between a human mother and an infant, and we can say, well, that's not instinctual kind of, you know, that's a kind of... That's just the generosity of the human female, the mm. motherhood, the you know this kind of thing, and we can look at that exact same behavior, and I have seen it so many times in so many species. It's incredible uh, watching a female caribou stay with her dead calf for three weeks, still trying to raise it when there was nothing left but small bones and scattered pieces of skin after going through the stages of being covered in maggots to the point that it was just a seething white mass and she would lie there with it and continuously try to raise it and put her nuzzle down to it and so on. Oh, that's all instinct, right? That has none of this other beautiful dimension of the human mother with her offspring. That's just all instinct. That's, you know, that's... Like the story I tell of the animal splayed out for the vivisectionist two or three hundred years ago, that's just the wheels and the mechanism and the hinges, not the howls of pain and torture that the animal is experiencing. Same way as we try to make these dichotomies between us and them, because we have in some ways to believe that there is this difference. But the truth of the matter is, and I, I just so fundamentally have believed this for so long, there is really very little difference at all 
and the differences that do exist are about specific talents. We are an incredible animal that can do incredible things, such as this crazy stuff you and I are doing <laughs> here now with the right. wires and these signals that go over way. But tell me the human being who you could take from the Canadian Arctic and travel once through the sky all the way down to nearly the tip of South America and then turn to that human six months from that time and say, okay, find your way back. Yeah. No, it, hu no human would... They'd be lost. There are, so what is it that only our distinctive attributes can be so special, special that we are separate from them, but all of their incredible attributes just make them a lump of others? This, to me, is completely frail, illogical, you know, just, just kind of scattered thinking that has no cogency about it whatsoever. We're just one of them, but that does not mean that we can then also say we're one of them and let's separate ourselves, or we can justify every action because we're one of them. And the basic equations of life, that flesh eats flesh. You know, the greatest, the greatest uh, American mythologist of all time Joseph Campbell's and Joseph Campbell and mm. one of the greatest in the world when asked a question at the end not nearly the end of his career he was asked to sum up all that he knew if if you had to explain Joseph Campbell what is the one really essential truth that has given rise to all these expressions of religion and mythology in the world across all these cultures and time what would you say it is and he said flesh eats flesh. Hmm. That's where all of this comes from. And he's right, because it was that cosmic interaction, and when we began to reflect on it, that I firmly believe gave rise to our ideas of mythology and of religion and all of these kinds of things. Um, you know, the, take the concept, for example, of resurrection, which is part of many, many uh, established religions. When I killed two moose in two years uh, that both died in virtually the same location. And the animal that I butchered the first year, eviscerated and quartered and took out of there, um, obviously those remains drained into that small piece of soil and vegetation. The second year, the moose I harvested, killed, died very close, within a few meters of where that other animal had, just by pure circumstance. But when I went to eviscerate that bull, I could see where the other animal had died and been eviscerated by the slight difference in the exuberance of the plants that existed there. Interesting. So it became relatively easy for early humans for a long period of time to understand this idea of rebirth and recreation and arising, just as they understood 
that the more the plains of grass were grazed, the more they grew. And yet, if you did not have the grass grazed, it reached a point and then sort of hardened and then eventually perished. These these notions are 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 are, are not so hard to understand how they began to come into the human psyche and the human body of knowledge. Migrations and stars and, Mm -hmm. you know, turnings of the planet and so on and so forth. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And, of course, we lost all of that. There was no one to tell us those things. And once agriculture came, and the you know, and eventually communities and city states and so on and so forth arose, none of those people who had lived those thousands of generations before, there was no one could ever tell us what they knew, except what we could learn from the remaining circumstances. And of course, the greatest opportunity that presented itself there, one of the greatest, was when Europeans came here, and we could have learned from the. 300 to 400 civilizations that had actually been established here but of course we basically lost that by killing them all Uh, and uh, you know if we really want to talk about kind of a problem that we had you know (laughs) that's one we could go back to but my point is that unfortunately even the few insights that we were able to take from those amazing cultures just make us understand of how important our relationship with animals has always been, not just to our basic biological requirements, but to the psychological, emotional, and intellectual development of human beings. Shane, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and and chat with me. You've shared some incredible things. I think we could probably do another three or four days, um, just your wealth of knowledge on these topics. I just wanted to recognize you for the great conservation work you're doing, the conversations that you're starting, uh, they are, they're definitely changing, uh, not only just the hunting community, but they're changing the world. Uh, they're, they're very important. So thank you for all the work that you do. Where can people connect you with you, much. find you? Oh, just look for me. It's Shane Mahoney. They'll find me. Or okay. They conservation <laughs> visions. They'll, it's not so hard these days. There's no privacy anymore. No, so. no, no. <laughs> there's uh, there's none of that. That is gone. Yeah. That is extinct. Yeah. Uh, one final question that I ask uh, a lot of my guests and I wanted to ask you is what is one action everyone listening should take right now? I think the one action they should take is to say that in this year I will do something that will be dedicated to the improvement, the betterment, and the securing of a future for wild creatures on this planet. I love it. Everybody, Shane Mahoney, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. 